Uncovering the Mysteries of Mars' Wet History, this week on Planetary Radio. I'm Sarah Al-Ahmed of the Planetary Society, with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. From fascinating new evidence of possible ancient mega-tsunamis on Mars to the discovery of Opal's and Gale Crater, we're about to delve into some of the latest findings about Mars's watery past with our guest this week, Mars expert Tanya Harrison. Bruce Betts will join us to share more on what's in the night sky in What's Up and a special Mars rover prize in this week's space trivia contest. There's some fun news from the Jovian system. According to the Minor Planet Center, Jupiter now has 12 more confirmed moons, bringing the number of known moons orbiting the largest planet in our solar system to 92. That means that Jupiter has finally taken the lead over Saturn's 83 known moons, for now. The James Webb Space Telescope, or JWST, continues to capture mind-blowing data on objects both near and far, including observations of Chariklo, a 250-kilometer or 160-mile-in-diameter icy body beyond the orbit of Saturn. When Chariklo passed in front of a star, the telescope was able to detect its rings. The rings were first observed by ground-based telescopes in 2013, and it's thrilling to get even more details on the ring system around this tiny planetary body. JWST also captured images of a developing star system around a red dwarf star 32 light years away called AU MIC. The space telescope was able to show the debris disk around the star in two different wavelengths of infrared light. AU MIC already has two known planets, and the disk is the result of collisions between the remaining planet forming materials in the system. You can find these JWST images, info on these stories, and more in the February 3rd edition of the Downlink, the Planetary Society's weekly newsletter. You can read it or subscribe to have it sent to your inbox for free every Friday at planetary.org downlink. Discovering the history of water on Mars has been a captivating journey for scientists. Over the years, various missions and experiments have helped build a more complete picture of the planet's watery past. From early observations of ice on the surface to more recent findings of subsurface ice and even the potential for flowing water, each new discovery has added to our understanding of the role that water has played on Mars. In 2016, a NASA-funded research project showed that two potential mega-tsunami events in Mars's watery past could have played a role in forming Martian coastal terrain. It was an exciting finding that was followed up by a recent paper published in December in the Journal of Scientific Reports, saying that a newly discovered impact crater on Mars, called Pole, may have caused one of these two megatsunami events. It's estimated that Pole Crater was created when an asteroid about 3 to 9 kilometers, or 1.9 to 5.6 miles across, slammed into Mars 3.4 billion years ago. If these findings are correct, the impact created a mega-tsunami 250 meters tall, that's 820 feet, that flung water and debris up to 1,500 kilometers, 932 miles, from the impact site. Elsewhere on Mars, NASA's Curiosity rover has discovered opal, a water-rich mineral in Gale Crater. Our guest to explain these new findings is Dr. Tanya Harrison. She's a Mars expert, geologist, and fellow at the Outer Space Institute. She's worked on multiple NASA missions to Mars, including Opportunity, Curiosity, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, and Perseverance. Hi, Tanya. Thanks for joining me on Planetary Radio. Thanks so much for having me. 
there are just so many new discoveries going on on Mars right now, particularly about Mars's watery past. So I'm, I'm really glad that I have you on to talk about this. I've been following your career for ages, and it's, it's wonderful to finally meet you. Oh, thanks so much. NASA's Viking 1 lander touched down on Mars, and scientists looked at those images, and it was just kind of a little baffling at the time because they found this terrain that was just littered with boulders, and I don't think that's what they expected. Why was that so surprising? So they chose the landing site for that lander based on looking at images from orbit that showed that this should have been the mouth of a gigantic outflow channel. We're talking volumes of water flowing through, carving this channel larger than anything we've seen on the Earth. They expected to land and see all of this evidence of flowing liquid water. And instead, they ended up in this boulder field and not full of boulders that look like they were smoothed by water like you would expect. They're very angular, very jagged, probably the kind of thing that would have been shot out all over the surface by giant impacts, which it's probably not surprising. Mars is covered in craters, but they didn't find that evidence of all of the water that maybe should have been there or we would have guessed would be there based on all of these outflow channels emptying into that area where the lander landed. This goes back to the imagery that we've gotten from space of Mars. When we looked at it with Mars Global Surveyor and Mars Odyssey and Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which you worked on, the Martian coastlines just weren't what we expected. And there was all this evidence of just a strange history going on on Mars. You know, what did we expect to see from space on these coastlines? And why did the data throw everyone for a loop? I feel like the shorelines have been this will they, won't they kind of thing since the Viking era, basically. You know, it, it was really easy to look at Mars at the global scale and say, you have all these huge outflow channels they flow into the northern plains, which is a lower elevation than the rest of the planet, generally speaking. So it just made sense to think, well, this water emptied out. It had to have pooled there and formed this ocean. But then when you looked along sort of that, what we call the dichotomy boundary between the northern and the southern hemisphere, where you might expect the edges of that ocean to be, at Viking Resolution, there wasn't really a ton of evidence for shorelines. There might be a couple of scientists that would argue with that, but in general, it was not widely accepted in the community that there was indeed this ocean that took over the whole Northern Hemisphere. Then moving forward with Mars Global Surveyor, you get this huge increase in image resolution. With Viking, the highest resolution images are generally something like you know 10-ish meters per pixel, maybe some that are a little bit higher than that. Mars Global Surveyor, Surveyor got us down into like the one to six meter resolution range. And so they not only mapped the whole planet at a lower resolution, but they were getting these postage stamp views along where we thought the shoreline should be. And again, the, the features that you would expect to see, because we know what shorelines look like thanks to having them all over the earth from our oceans here, we weren't seeing any morphological evidence of that. And so it was really confusing. I said, okay, well, where did all this water go then if you had these channels that are emptying into this large basin? Uh, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter got us down to sub-meter resolution imagery so we could get an even closer look at these areas. And we still weren't seeing a ton of widespread evidence for shorelines. There were some ideas that maybe there were some places that, that we saw deformed evidence of shorelines, and maybe that's why we didn't pick it up before. There was uh, a few groups proposing that maybe maybe there were these mega tsunamis based on some data from Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. 
again, a, a little bit controversial depending on how you look at the, the images and the way that they interpreted them. So we're still kind of left at this point where, well, morphologically, it looks like there could have been an ocean there. Climate-wise, in terms of climate models, there could have been an ocean there in the distant past. But the observations and the models and, and, and everything aren't really coming together to cleanly say, yes, there was an ocean here. It lasted for X amount of time. Where are all the sediments that we should be seeing if there was an ocean? Where is that shoreline? It's, it's still a little bit muddy. No, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember back in 2016, reading those first articles about potentially there being mega tsunamis on Mars and being kind of baffled by that because, you know, as you said, Mars might have had water there in the past, but a mega tsunami evokes this idea of just a massive, massive wave, so much bigger than, you know, we would expect here in modern times on Earth. I remember reading that it was like they thought there were two separate tsunamis that had happened. How did the data lead them to that conclusion? I think it was because of the shape of the things that they had mapped out as tsunami deposits. It wasn't really consistent with all of that coming from a single point source. So they've been trying to track down with their research what craters might have been the initiation points for these tsunamis. And so they, they think that they've tracked it down um, based on sort of backtracking where those deposits came from. I read that recently too, that they think that one of the two tsunamis, the older one, they think they found the crater that it came out of, which is a pole crater, which is, you know, kind of northeast of where Viking one landed, but it's quite a distance. It's like almost a thousand kilometers they talk about these boulders from the original Viking discovery in the paper that they wrote about this subject. And I'm wondering, you know, is, is their idea that this mega tsunami potentially literally carried boulders over there or, or this blast launched these boulders in that direction? It sounds like their, their proposal was that the waves generated from the impact could transport a lot of this material. This is where it gets to be a little bit controversial in that there are folks that have tried to model what would happen if an impact occurred into an ocean here on earth. Galen Geisler, I apologize if I'm pronouncing his last name incorrectly, I've only ever seen it written, but he's been doing a lot of models to, to see would you actually get a tsunami if you had an asteroid enter the water. The models that he's ran for years say no. Um, the way that the physics works with the shock waves that you get from the interaction of this asteroid, you know, coming through the atmosphere, entering the water, are not the same as the dynamics that you get when you actually have something like the movement of the seafloor, which is generally it triggers a tsunami. When you have something like an earthquake or a volcanic eruption, you actually have something that is displacing an entire column of water in the ocean. And that means that it can propagate through the ocean way more efficiently and much farther than something like a point source, you know, an impact like a, an asteroid entering the water. That's more like throwing a pebble in the water. You'll you see ripples come away from that, but they dissipate very quickly. And so we might be talking apples and oranges in terms of how you actually get these things dispersed. One big difference here though is that if these models are being run at Los Alamos for the Earth, obviously our oceans are incredibly deep. On Mars, Looking at these tsunami models, it looks like their assumption is that 
this asteroid, like the impact would actually make it through the water column and impact into the seafloor. And that's how it's transferring a lot of this momentum into the water and generating these waves, maybe throwing stuff along the, the seafloor, also being transferred by these waves to be littered across the surface. That's where you'd really have to dig into the inputs of the models. And that gets a little bit beyond my area of expertise, but I would be really curious to, to see uh, like a comparison of the inputs and the outputs of both of those models side by side. If you took the model from Earth and then adjusted it for things like Martian gravity, Martian ocean depths, Martian temperatures, any of that kind of stuff, would you get something that is reasonable with uh, or lines up really well with the interpretations of these Martian tsunami papers? What I've read is that these impacts, if they happened, were about you know 3.4 and 3 billion years ago. And I'm wondering about what was kind of occurring on Mars at that time with water. Like my understanding is that a lot of the water on Mars when it existed was already starting to dry up at that point. So what ocean was it that they smashed into? There have been two kind of major oceans proposed on Mars. There's like a Noachian ocean. The history of Mars is basically split into three geologic eras, the Noachian, the Hesperian, and the Amazonian. Much easier to remember than the plethora of geologic eras that we have here <laughs> on the Earth. So that's very convenient. Um, so the Noachian Ocean, we're not really talking about in this particular model. That would have like three and a half, four billion years ago, like when Mars was much warmer and wetter, theoretically, with its thicker atmosphere. When you look at this second ocean, what we call the Late Hesperian Ocean, this is when Mars is starting to turn into this more cold polar desert that's a lot more akin to what we see today. And so there's been a lot of controversy over whether well, one, did that ocean exist? Two, if it did exist, was it around for very long? Was it actually an ocean that was capped by ice? Was it kind of a transient ocean where you'd have a little bit of water and then you'd go through this temperature fluctuation and it would freeze over and then maybe some of it actually uh, is like still retained underground in the form of ice or water that's actually bound up in minerals? There are two separate ideas of like a, a huge time period in between this ancient, ancient ocean on Mars and this uh, slightly less ancient ocean on Mars. <laughs> you were talking about the idea that some of this water on Mars could have been bound up in minerals. And, and that brings me to another discovery that was announced recently that literally made me double take, which was that Curiosity, the Curiosity rover on Mars may have found evidence of opals in Gale Crater. How did that happen? How did it find opals on Mars? I'm glad that Curiosity is back in the news. I feel like anytime you get a shiny new rover, the older rovers you know, take a little bit of a backseat, but it's still chucking along in Gale Crater and still making really important discoveries like this. This opal that Curiosity found is concentrated in what we call veins in the rocks. So there are these little cracks where you tend to have minerals that will form. You can see this if you look at rocks in, in places on the earth, if you see lighter colored stuff or darker colored stuff kind of moving throughout a rock, um, you can pick it up pretty easily. This is something where usually you have water flowing through these cracks and then you'll have stuff that was in that water precipitate out or that water will interact with stuff in the rocks that it's moving through and it can cause stuff to crystallize in there. And so you had water moving through these cracks in Gale and creating this silica. Usually on Earth, when we see this, it tends to be in hydrothermal settings. So you have some kind of volcanic activity that's heating water as it's moving through these cracks. That's obviously a big deal for Mars because water plus heat on Earth 
a really good environment for life. So maybe this is something where when the silica was forming, it could have been a habitable environment. We know the Gale Crater used to be a lake. It was probably around for tens of thousands to maybe even hundreds of thousands of years. If it was warm, plus we know it had all the chemical components that life needs to survive, maybe this was a great little place for little microbes to be hanging out three and a half billion years ago. If we look at it separate from the idea of past life on Mars, Opal is also a really great resource for maybe future humans on Mars because it has water in its mineral structure. And it's easy to, in the grand scheme of things, easy to remove that water. And so it could be potentially a resource for humans living on Mars if we want them to be at these lower latitudes like Gale. Gale's pretty close to the equator. Usually when we're talking about things like buried ice on Mars or even surface ice, you're at latitudes that are not at all hospitable for humans to have an extended presence. The weather in the higher latitudes is really bad and it's very, very cold up there. But if you're at the equator in summer, you can get temperatures akin to like a nice sunny day here on the earth. So we would love to keep people at the lower latitudes if possible, but you got to find water for them to survive. So maybe we'll find more of this opal in other places that we can harvest for the astronauts. Mm -hmm. Do you think these Martian opals are in any way visually similar to what we find here on Earth? You know, when I think of opals, I think of these beautiful fire opals from Australia and stuff like that. Do you think they're going to look the same or is it going to be very different because it's from a different planet? I would love to think that they would look as beautiful as the ones we find on the Earth. Generally, you know, if you walk up and like pull a hunk of opal out of a cave wall in Australia or something like that. It's obviously not going to look exactly like what you might have in a ring setting or like a, a polished tumbled version at a gem show. Um, but you do see that iridescent look to it. it. It's a very distinctive thing about opal and you'll kind of peep it in different spots. But you can also have um, opal that doesn't have that flash in it. Uh, so it's much less visually appealing. I would imagine since these are such small deposits in these little veins, you probably wouldn't see that, unfortunately, but I would really love to be wrong because it would be pretty cool to have a ring made out of Martian opal someday. <laughs> <laughs> but thankfully, we have some plans to actually bring some of these samples back to Earth and test them, which is interesting that we're even at that phase of Martian exploration. Just the idea of going to another world. I, mean, I know we did it with the moon, but this is a whole different thing. As you said, it's not like we have humans there picking up the samples and bringing them home. These are robots we're controlling from afar, pulling samples out of Mars and sending them back home. <laughs> Gosh, what do you think we're going to find in those samples? <sighs> I think those samples will be that first step in that, oh man, we had XYZ all wrong because there's going to be so much we can do in laboratories here on Earth that we just, you know, we can't miniaturize everything to do it on Mars. You have stuff that needs really large equipment. You need some stuff that uses consumable reagents and stuff like that that we can't send to Mars. So I'm hoping that we are able to answer some really critical questions. The other thing is that these are the first samples that we're going to have where we know where they came from. We have meteorites from Mars, and so those have been extremely valuable in that, you know, we know that they have hydrated minerals in them. We found some of these, you know, building blocks of life in these meteorites, but we have no idea where on Mars they came from. So it's like the equivalent of if I just walked outside here, picked up a random rock and handed it to you and said, 
tell me the entire history of Earth from this one rock. <laughs> Just something planetary scientists tend to do. They're like, I'm going to look at this one thing and from that tell you the history of the whole planet. We would never try to do that on the Earth. So I don't know why we try to do that on Mars. It's not, it makes no sense. But now we're going to have samples where we know like this came from this particular layer of the delta in Jezero or like this particular rock X meters away from the delta. And so we'll actually be able to like firmly put together this story in a way that we've never been able to do before. Well, thanks, Tanya, for sharing so much about the history of Mars and its watery past. There is so much left to learn. And I hope in the future you'll come back on the show when we learn even more things, maybe when Mars Sample Return brings all those samples back. That would be amazing. I'll talk to you in 2030. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. We'll put it on the calendar. <laughs> all right. Thanks all right. so much, Tanya. Thanks, Sarah. It was an absolute pleasure having Mars expert Tanya Harrison on Planetary Radio. The idea of a thriving, watery Mars is captivating, and I can't wait to learn what other secrets the Red Planet has in store for us. You can hear the extended version of my interview with Tanya Harrison in the podcast and online version of the show at planetary.org slash radio or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. We'll be right back for What's Up after a short break. Hello, I'm George Takei. And as you know, I'm very proud of my association with Star Trek. Star Trek was a show that looked to the future with optimism, boldly going where no one had gone before. I want you to know about a very special organization called the Planetary Society. They are working to make the future that Star Trek represents a reality. Boldly go to build our future. There is so much going on in space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Amber, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Catch the latest space exploration news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. And now it's time for What's Up with Bruce Betts. Hi, Bruce. Hi, Sarah. How are you doing? Doing pretty good. And I'm sure after that last interview with Tanya Harrison, people are going to want to know how they can go outside and look up at the sky and hopefully see Mars. So is Mars up this week? I mean, what's up in the night sky? <laughs> beautiful segue. Mars is beautiful and, and easy. I like to start you with super bright Venus. I mean, you know, it's Venus, but it's really, really bright, and it's low in the west in the early evening. And then you go up to Jupiter, up above it, and they're getting closer together, and Jupiter is still very bright. Follow a line to, like, way up in the sky for most most latitudes, and then you'll see a reddish star and another reddish star kind of nearby. Mars is still the brighter one compared to Aldebaran and Taurus, so that's how you can see Mars. We've got Comet up uh, that is tough to see, at least unless you're at a really dark site or have some nice binoculars or telescope, then it's really pretty. Uh, but Comet ZTFC 2022 E3 is uh, going to be between Mars and Capella. Mars looking really reddish and bright and Capella, another bright star on February 8th. It'll be hanging out near Mars. You can catch the two together, but probably only if you have a telescope by that point but they will be hanging out near each other on February 10th. It is the green comet, so-called, that their people are getting beautiful pictures of, but is tough to see uh, with just your eyes. That'll, we'll let that be the rundown for this, this time around. 
Let us move on to a, a, a couple oddballs in this week in space history. Uh, 1990, Galileo spacecraft flew by Venus on its way to Jupiter, one of the, the, the first of the, hey, let's go in towards the sun, get a gravity assist from Venus, and then head out to Jupiter in a counterintuitive move. It would do several other flybys of Venus and Earth and then head out to Jupiter and do a wonderful tour there. And then in 2001, near Shoemaker, the spacecraft that orbited Eros, well, they, they were out of fuel just about, so they decided, hey, let's try to land on, on a, an asteroid, even though we don't have a lander. And it worked, and that was cool. So the first landing on an asteroid was by a spacecraft not designed on a land on an asteroid, and it actually returned some data after doing so. We move on to random space fact. Nice musical one. I like that. Oh, thank you. I was trying to come up with a constellations-based fact. And the ones I came up with mostly I'd, I'd actually done before. And then I realized something odd that I'd never had pointed out. So truly random. Of the 88 IAU-defined constellations, 22 or one quarter of them start with the letter C, which is also for cookie. <laughs> but there's no cookie constellation. Yeah, that'd make it a little difficult to memorize them in alphabetical order if you ever tried, but dare you. <laughs> There's, there are other clumps of several uh, that have the same letter, but, the, but C wins by a landslide. Let's move on to the trivia question. I asked you, speaking of odd orbital maneuvers that seem counterintuitive, what's the only mission to fly to Jupiter and then go inwards rather than outwards in the solar system? How'd we do? People definitely got this one, which is interesting because it's a bit of a, a quirky orbit there, but it was the Ulysses spacecraft. It was a joint mission between NASA and the European Space Agency to go study the sun, but in order to get into the right orbit around the sun. In 1992, it had to perform a gravity assist maneuver around Jupiter and then slingshot itself back into the inner solar system. So <laughs> pretty cool. Kind of the opposite of what Galileo accomplished, what you were talking about earlier. Yeah, they were using it to uh, mostly to change the inclination of the orbit so they could go and see the polar regions more. Our winner this week is Jason Manning from Rockford, Illinois, USA. And Jason, you've won a Planetary Society kick asteroid, rubber asteroid. And, Ooh. you know, it's it's funny. I got a lot of messages, and I didn't expect this, but people were concerned that I didn't roll the R on the rubber the last time we were talking about it. So my apologies. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, <laughs> he built up quite an expectation for the uh, rolling R's. I'm going to give you another trivia question for the host because she brings to us the most. Huh? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, here we go. New question. What astronaut included his two rescue dogs in his official NASA photo? I know you know it, Sarah. Shh, don't say I won't say, but it's one of my favorite astronaut photos of all time. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. And you have until Wednesday, February 15th at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us the answer. And we'll be selecting one lucky winner to receive a Goodnight Oppie 12-ounce thermal mug, which is kind of topical because our guest Tanya Harrison once worked on the Opportunity Rover. I had a part of our conversation that wasn't recorded was actually about how she saw herself in that documentary and was a little surprised because uh, she didn't know that they were all being recorded in those moments of excitement when Opportunity was landing on Mars. So <laughs> that was awesome. That's cool. 
Uh, does the thermal mug for Opportunity come with a little radioactive heat sources like Opportunity had? You know, just to keep your, your coffee warm? No, no, it does not. Just checking. Everybody go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about your favorite form of maniacal laughter. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Bruce. That was Bruce Betts, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. We've reached the end of this week's episode of Planetary Radio, but we'll be back next week to speak with Jean-Luc Margot and Megan Lee from UCLA about the release of their Planetary Society step-grant-funded citizen science project to search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by our Red Planet researching members. You can join us to help support future Martian missions at planetary.org slash join. Mark Helverta and Ray Pauletta are our associate producers. Andrew Lucas is our audio editor. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. And until next week, ad astra. Astra.